be seated. As we do each Lord's Day, let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word. We'll turn together to our passage for this morning. And really, we will be in this passage for the rest of the season. That is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6. So turn, please, with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. As you know, we've already discussed some. Today is the uh, first Sunday of Advent. And so if you are new to this tradition or you, you may need a refresher about it, um, it's good for us to, to think through. Um, uh, Advent is the time of the year uh, set aside so that we as God's people can intentionally and deliberately think about and prepare for a celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a rather new tradition to me. I was not raised in the tradition of observing uh, Advent. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of those interesting traditions we don't find prescribed for us in Scripture. The 11th commandment is not thou shalt have Advent. But it's good for us. It's good because part of, of, of Advent is, is thinking back to the, the longing of God's people for Jesus to be born. And how it matches our longing for Jesus to come back again. Uh, just as they were preparing for the coming of their Messiah, uh, we as Christians are told to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. To live in preparation. Paul says he will come like a thief in the night. We do not know uh, when he will come back. We know he, he, we know he will. And it will be a blessed time. So in this time of Advent, we, we prepare ourselves for the, the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, but we also live in that longing of wanting him to come back and come soon, as John says at the end of Revelation. So with this in mind, our Advent sermon series this season is going to be focusing on this Isaiah passage, uh, which was uh, given uh, by the Holy Spirit to Isaiah, was recorded as his prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus. It was a looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And what we're going to do is we're going to particularly focus in on verse 6, but this morning we're going to start reading in verse 2 so we can have proper context on this verse. So Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse, uh, in verse 2. And let me pray for us as we come now before God's word. Lord, we prayed it now you would continue to build up that longing in us. Longing to hear your word, to hear it read, to hear it explained, to, hear, to have it applied to our minds and our hearts. May it also build up our longing and our desire for Jesus to come back and to come quickly. May you lead us and guide us in our time of worship now through your word. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spool. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flowers fade. What of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So we, we, we come now to the season that is commonly sung and identified and described as being the most wonderful time of the year, right? A whole, a whole song about it. And if you if you think about Christmas and all the traditions that go along with Christmas, a, a big part of it is music, right? We can think of all sorts of, of, of songs and music that go along with, with Christmas. You can go from uh, from songs such as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to, to Jingle Bells to it's the most wonderful time of the year. You can go to your hymnal and sing like we sang this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, a silent night, joy to the world. And it's interesting when you look at, at Christmas, so much of it involves music. Can you imagine Christmas without music? Can you imagine us not singing carols or hymns? Can you imagine uh, carolers out there? Can you not imagine Christmas pageants where uh, that one little kid has on the red nose and, and, the, and the reindeer and, or the ears and the horns, whatever you call him. He's, he's Rudolph. Can you imagine it? I think it's, 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 it's fitting in this that I think one of the most majestic pieces Majestic pieces of music for Christmas is, is Handel's Messiah. Uh, in, in just a few hours, at 3 p.m., Zion Presbyterian Church, a number of our, of our choir members will be uh, singing, along with others, in the, in the presentation of, of Handel's Messiah. Uh, so if you uh, have nothing else to do this afternoon, 3 p.m., Zion Presbyterian Church. If you don't want to be there, 3 p.m., Pine Tree Playhouse. Uh, they have a Christmas play going on, and my daughter's in it. So either I'm going to see you at Messiah, or they're going to see you at the Pine Tree Playhouse. How's that for pastoral guilt from the pulpit? <laughs> Handel's Messiah. It's beautiful. It's majestic. And it's very much a part of the Christmas season. But interestingly enough, Handel didn't write it for, for Christmas. He, he wrote it for Easter. This is, a, this is an Easter piece. As a matter of fact, it was debuted in Dublin, Ireland during the Easter season, but, but somewhere along the line it has become more associated with Christmas. It has, uh, it quotes 81 Bible verses from 41 different books of the Bible, but the Isaiah prophecy is, is quoted the most at, at 21 verses. So out of Isaiah 9, it's quoted the most at 21 verses. And, and, and one that, to me, you know, Boosie is the expert in classical music, so she may disagree with me, but she's not preaching, I am. Um, but to me, one of the climax and, and the crescendos of this work is when the choir, and when you'll hear this afternoon, singing in full voice, singing out this passage we just read. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you're familiar, if you're familiar all of Handel's Messiah, you're probably familiar with the Hallelujah Chorus, and then you're familiar with this, and and you may even hear it now in your, in your mind of, uh, of how wonderfully it's, it's sung. So, so it's interesting to note that Handel, dealing with the birth of Jesus, 
doesn't so much sink, focus on the manger. He is inspired by this Isaiah passage. As he tells the Easter story, and tells it in part through the Christmas story, he describes his Christmas narrative with these four titles. So Handel, being inspired, and more so from Isaiah, this is the description of the Christmas story. To them, this is the Jesus of Christmas. They're not focusing on the, uh, the baby in the manger and, and little drummer boy. And, and also, to them, the Jesus of Christmas is the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the, the Prince of Peace. I think it's interesting, the interesting part is, 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 I think when we come to this chapter, there's a sense where the prophet, from his perspective, takes us to the future. From our perspective, brings us in the past. But the prophet takes us to Bethlehem, to the nativity scene. And we were standing in the corner. And we're able to take it all in. We see Joseph, the relieved father. Mary, the exhausted mother. The baby laying in the manger. And outside the door, we, we see the star of Bethlehem. And we see coming down the road, shepherds. And a little while later, we get word of, of the magi who are coming, the wise men. And while we're taking all this in, we're taking this whole scene in, Isaiah leans in and says, look in that manger. Do you know who that is? That is the Christ child. And that Christ child... He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. It's a, it's a powerful scene, isn't it? Isaiah, who through the power of the Holy Spirit is given this glimpse into the future of, of to Bethlehem, to the stable, to, to the Christ child laid in the manger. And he describes him with these four very meaningful, four very powerful titles. So what we're going to do for Advent this year is we're going to look at each of these titles of, of Christ. That at Christmas we celebrate the birth of the one who was promised and looked forward to, who we know as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the, the prince of peace. And of course, this is all within, within context. And, and the context is actually rather dire. We just have to go back to chapter 8 and see that Isaiah is pronouncing rather dire predictions of the coming suffering for the people of God because they're in that cycle we see so much in the Old Testament of, of God's people being blessed by God, loved by God, guided by God, but they choose to rebel against God and they fall into sin and a further sin and further and further unrepentant sin and sometimes end up going to places that it is hard, it just boggles our minds, hard for us to grasp. And then God disciplines them. And brings them, leads them back to him. And everything's hunky-dory for a little while. And then they begin to rebel and rebel and rebel again. That's the cycle that the prophet Isaiah is dealing with God's people with. And we think of verse 8.22. It shows how dire a situation would be. They will look to their earth, but behold, distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. That doesn't sound very, uh, that doesn't sound very Merry Christmassy, does it? 
Merry Christmas, distress, darkness, gloom of anguish, thick darkness. Merry Christmas. But then Isaiah comes to chapter 9. And it's like the clouds are, are parting. And the sun is starting to, to shine through because there, there's a promise. It's not the promise of an army. It's the promise of a child, of a son being born. And, and Isaiah shares this message because it, it's a coming hope. It's, it's a bright and clear hope. And he, and he shares this by using contrast. And in verse 2, he talks about light instead of darkness, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's contrast there. Verse 3, there's joy instead of sorrow. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased this joy. Well, increase this joy against what? Increase this joy against sorrow. They rejoice before you as with joy after the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verses 4 and 5 talk about freedom instead of oppression. The rod his oppressor, you have broken. It's on the day of Midian. And so for every boot of the tramping warrior and the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So Isaiah is explaining through, through these uh, contradictions, so there's contrast, that in the midst of their suffering, suffering brought on by their sin, the people of God can have hope. No matter how, how bad it may get, no matter how, how spiritually dark it may seem, they can have hope. Like days like on this, that, that right behind the dark clouds, the sun is shining. There's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. They can hold on to this hope that God gives them his people. But Isaiah does something here. He says, as if this isn't marvelous enough, it gets even more so about all this, all this promise of light, joy, and hope is entirely focused on what? Not an army, not war, but on the birth of a baby. Was there hope in the midst of all this? That there's going to be a baby's cry. And that baby's cry is their hope. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. These are the same verses that Matthew quotes. He quotes them as being fulfilled with the birth. The birth of Joseph and Mary's baby. The child in Isaiah 9 is the child who's laid in a manger of Bethlehem, and that's Jesus Christ. Isaiah is prophesying about a birth that gives hope for those who were in darkness that they will one day see great light. For those who are in anguish will now be full of joy. For those who were in bondage will be set free at last. That there's hope for them in the midst of the suffering brought on by their sins. Because this hope is all centered on a child in that manger. That Christ child. If you go throughout history. If you look at the, the history of art. And in that history of art. You, you look at all the paintings of the nativity scene. You usually. You, there's of course a, there's a theme. Every nativity scene has the same theme. But you'll often notice that there's a shaft of light that is depicted coming down upon the manger or upon the Christ child. It's usually depicted as coming from the star of Bethlehem. But for some of the artists, this was a way of them visually showing the hope of Isaiah 9-6. In the midst of darkness, 
There's hope because of the one who's lying in that manger. And Isaiah says, this one who's our hope is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Why these titles? Well, it was common in the ancient world when a king ascended to his throne, he would be given additional names. And these were meant to describe his rule and to outline his mission. So if you became a king, they said, okay, uh, here's how you're going to rule. Here's what you're going to do. And that's the function of these titles here. They tell us this is who Jesus is. This is also what he has come to do. And for us, what he has accomplished for us. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? <clears throat> what has he done perfectly? The wonderful counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting father. The prince of peace. And so we're going to spend the rest of Advent unpacking these titles. And we begin this morning with the first one that tells us what Jesus, who Jesus is. What he came to do. And that's a wonderful counselor. So we hear the word wonderful, what, what comes to mind? When, you, when you, you hear of and think of the word wonderful, what, what comes to mind? Well, maybe in a season, you think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Right? Again, can you, can you imagine Christmas without, um, without a wonderful life being, being shown? But that, that word tends to be an emotional, subjective word for us. We think something is wonderful because of the experience of it. Something is wonderful because it brings a sense of wonder from that experience. All three of my, of my children have loved Christmas in their own way. But, but I think our son Patrick kind of takes the cake. He loves all things Christmas. So much so we start calling him uh, Mr. Christmas. One of his favorite things is he, he loves Christmas trees. Uh, I think he's on his sixth tree decorating. Is that right, Beth? We've lost counts. Uh, he's so good. He enjoys it so much that his grandmothers reserve him. And they get out their calendar and reserve when Patrick can come and help him decorate the tree. He was here Wednesday night helping decorate the Christmas tree. He asked me the other day uh, if they need help decorating the, the town Christmas tree. Um, I had no answer to that. He loves Christmas trees. He, he loves to sit in our living room and look at ours all, all lit up. He likes to drive around town and, and look at Christmas lights and, and Christmas trees. And when we do it, he's just filled with wonder. He loves the experience of it. He loves it all. And so, of course, his wonder is, is wonder for us as well. But that may be how we think of this title of Jesus. Jesus is, is kind of counselor we're going to really, really like. He's He's wonderful. It's the, the experience of, of Jesus. It's wonderful. That's true. It's entirely true. But that's not what Isaiah has in mind here. When we look at the Old Testament, we find the word wonderful being something more along the lines of miraculous or supernatural. We think of Psalm 78, 12, where it says, In the sight of Israel's fathers, God performed wonders, mighty works in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through and let the water stand up like a heap. So the psalm is looking back at the exodus of God's people, at the miraculous intervention and work of God in that. And the psalmist describes that miraculous intervention and work of God as, as, as a wonder. Not, not just the experience of it, but the one who brought that experience, the one who's responsible for it. There's this, the, the, this miraculous, <clears throat> supernatural work taking place here. In Judges 13, 18, uh, the angel of the Lord meets Manoah, and Manoah asks his name, and the angel replies rather strangely, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is so wonderful? 
That sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? If you're to, if you're to meet somebody, I am pleased to meet you. What's your name? Don't worry about it. My name's too wonderful for you. Right? Um, I probably won't continue our conversation much longer with them. Like, okay, well, good for you, and then we'll, we'll move on. That's not what an angel means here. The angel means here is the Old Testament sense. It's above our natural capacity to comprehend. There's something supernatural and transcendent about his name. That's what Isaiah means when he says that Jesus is wonderful. And it's in the context of, of a child being born. So here's the wonder of it. That on that first Christmas, in that manger was a real person, a real human being, flesh and blood, a real and true infant. Had blood, he had blood coursing through his veins. He had a, a heart, a brain, he had DNA, he had <clears throat> he had fingerprints. He cried when he got hungry. His parents would have to change his diaper. He had to learn how to walk. He was a hundred percent man. But what? He was also supernaturally conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. What's wonderful about this? Because that child, for to us a child is born, a son is given, is one who's a hundred percent man, a hundred percent God. He's Emmanuel, God in the flesh. This one born in the manger is one who would grow up and would through his merely speaking would, would calm storms, would, would heal the sick, would give sight to the blind, would, ride, would raise the dead to life. That's why one commentator says, the Old Testament usage of the word wonder compels us to the conclusion that it here designates the Messiah not merely as someone extraordinary, but as one who is in his very person and being is a wonder. He is that which surpasses human thought and power. He is God himself. This is a divine wonder. This isn't like, oh, you've, you've done wonderful things. No, this is the one who is the great wonder. Jesus doesn't just do wonderful things. He is wonder himself. He is exalted, sovereign, supernatural. He is the child given. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, God tabernacling with his people. And that's is the wonder of Jesus. And that's the hope given to God's people here in Isaiah. Look, bad times are coming to y'all because you were dummies and you continue to sin and you continue to sin and you continue to sin but there's hope coming because there's a miraculous and supernatural wonder coming and that will be in the form of a child. The Christ child. The Messiah. I know what I'm going to say next, I know we understand, but we need to have a deep understanding that we don't celebrate just the birth of some child at Christmas. This isn't just some extraordinary birth. No, this is the Old Testament wonder of the birth of the wonder who is Jesus Christ. He is the great wonder. He is the one who is 100% God and 100% man. And one tiny baby. And the hope for us is that wonder, and he would be our wonder if we would just believe in who he is and what he came to do. We don't have to plumb the depths of it. We don't have to understand all the ins and outs. We just have to believe that that child born was really and truly Jesus. And that child born is really and truly our Savior. 
Because what does Isaiah say? For to us, God's people, a child is born. To us, a son is given. But not only is he wonderful, he's the wonderful counselor. When I hear the title counselor, I immediately think of my high school counselors. And God bless all school counselors. Man, that's a, that's a calling right there. They have some wonderful people to work with. Then they had people like me to work with. And you know, God bless them. But Jesus is more than just a helpful school counselor to help you, you know, know what direction to go in. He's more than some wonderful therapist who helps us live our best life now. When we think of those who are in power, uh, kings, leaders, stuff like that, we know they have counselors around them. They have, uh, a, good, a good leader will surround himself with, with good counselors, with people who, who will help him or her lead in the best possible way to give wisdom about critical decisions that are being made. And so what Isaiah is prophesying here, what he's teaching, what he's explaining, is that this child that's going to be born is the king of kings, right? The government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall, he should, he's not going to be appointed to it. It'll be upon his shoulders. But this king has no need of counselors. He doesn't need a, a chief of staff. He doesn't need an, an, an aide. He doesn't need a, a national security advisor. Why? Because this one is God. And God is wisdom. And he is wisdom above all other wisdom. He is the wonderful wisdom of and for God's people. Later on chapter 11, Isaiah will explain that Jesus is endowed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Paul would say this in Colossians 2.3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what Isaiah is prophesying here, what we need to understand, not that Jesus was just a wise person. He wasn't just a wise man. He wasn't like King Solomon who had wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. You cannot be any more wise than Jesus because he is wisdom personified. You think back uh, over, uh, over years and, 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 and pictures, you often see uh, somebody who's wise you know, a, a man who's wise, he looks, he's older. He's got you know, gray hair and a, and a long gray beard. And Jesus is the perfect epitome of that. He doesn't just have wisdom. He doesn't just excel in wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. And Isaiah says, this is the hope of God's people. The one who's coming is one who is wonder will be your wise counselor. <clears throat> Why is that hopeful? Because we like sheep have all gone astray. As we've learned before about sheep, they're not the smartest animals. And neither are we. God's people have been foolish in their sins. God's people have been unwise in who they've listened to and who they've trusted. For God's people, consistent wisdom always seems to be just out of reach for them. And here Isaiah promised them hope that the one who is coming will always be perfectly and consistently wise. He is the wonderful counselor, the one who is extraordinary in wisdom because he is wisdom. And that hope given to them is the hope given to us as well because we all need wisdom. We all need someone to help guide and direct our paths. You know, the older I get, the more I learn that when I'm left to my own wisdom and devices, it is a train wreck. No matter my best intentions, 
no matter how well planned it may be, left to my own wisdom and devices, it is going to be a spectacular train wreck. And that's true for all of us. And our hope, our hope is that born in that manger is the one who is our wonderful counselor. That's why James tells us in his epistle that if we ask for the wisdom of Christ, it will be given to us. Our wonderful counselor promises his wisdom for us because he is our wonderful counselor. I think, um, I think our society's view of Christmas has gotten very low. And I think the church at large's view of Christmas has gotten very shallow. It's, a, um, it's become a season of feel-good, warm and fuzzies. Let's put on sweaters, which is a bad idea in South Carolina. Put on sweaters, let's gather around the fireplace, and let's, let's spout off a bunch of warm and fuzzies. But God, to give hope to his people in the midst of discipline they brought upon themselves, points them to the Christmas story. The baby in the manger. His earthly parents lovingly gazing down upon him, the angels pronouncing his birth to the shepherds in the field, the wise men beginning their trek to his little one. And Isaiah, through the inspiration of God, points us to that manger and says, here is your hope. Your hope is that the one that manger is the wonderful counselor. The miraculous and supernatural intervention of God for you and all of his wisdom for you. So as we begin this Advent season, I encourage each of us to look at that same, man that same manger and find our eternal hope there. The hope of the wonder of who Jesus is and of his wisdom for you so we may better know who Christmas is is really all about. Let's pray together.